Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Independent Directors edition of Slate Money. This is a huge one. Brace yourselves, sit down, buckle in. This is going to be a podcast for the ages because... Boy, did we have business and finance news this week. We had Amazon buying Whole Foods. Of course, we have to talk about that. $13 billion. We had companies you've never heard of raising $140 million in something called an ICO, which you've probably never heard of. <laughs> way to Hopefully. <laughs> way, way to sell that one, Felix. <laughs> but there's like massive numbers. Like we are going to do a little bit of delving down into the wonderfully bizarre and nerdy world of Ether and cryptocurrencies and initial coin offerings, because if all you know about cryptocurrencies is a half-remembered medium post from four years ago about Bitcoin, things have moved on a bit since then. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. We are also, and this is kind of exciting, because we've heard your demands, dear listeners, for bonus nerdy content. If you stick through to the bitter end of this show, all the way through the numbers round, even all the way through me like thanking Dan Schrader for producing the show and telling his beloved mother not to worry too much. If you stick around for all of that, then at the very end of it, we're going to nerd out about convexity. We... There was there's so much we wanted to fix in We are to, literally quarantining this section just for the just, hardcore finance. Just people. for the hardcore finance people. There was a hundred year bond issued by Argentina this week, and we are not going to talk about Argentina, but we are going to talk about hundred year bonds and, and second pe- derivatives. And why people buy them and why people sell them and the second derivative of price with respect to yield. You know you want to stick around for that. Um and we are also But first. No, we haven't even, we're not even getting to the first (laughs) thing first. Oh, Jesus Christ. Before we even get to the first thing, we need to announce, like, well, I need to announce that I am Felix Salmon of Fusion. I need to announce that Anna Shemansky is here to bring some much needed intelligence and light. And I also need to announce that Jordan Weissman, the Slate Moneybox columnist who has been on this show for three and a half years, has now started cheating on us with yeah. another podcast. Yeah, I've, I've betrayed you. I have. It's not. I, I have my own show now. Uh, so think of it as this is Cheers and this is my Fraser. I've got going. Uh, did did sh- those two overlap? Uh, no, I don't think. I don't think they did. I don't think no, so. no. One ended and the other began. Is this? But is this are you trying to tell us something? Is this like a one foot out the door thing? No, it's not one. This. So I have a pop up podcast. Uh, it's called Trump Care Tracker. It's me and Jim Newell, Slate's uh, Capitol Hill correspondent. And basically, while Republicans are busy trying to repeal and apl- replace Obamacare, we're just going to be talking about that three days a week. Uh, it's about three days a week. Three days a week. Fifteen wow. minute episodes, catching everyone up on what the hell is going 
going on on Capitol Hill and the, what it means for you, me, and our ability to actually, you know, get healthcare in this country. Um, and so if you like me on this show, uh, you can hear me talk about something that I actually write about my day job, which, hey. <laughs> the, the, Jordan took this storied money box franchise, home, <laughs> of, home of the great, you know, Jim Sorowicki and Dan Gross, people like that, and has turned it into a policy wonkery. Yep. Everyone's know, got their corner. Sp- everyone's got their spin on it. Anyway, so so, um, so not a bad time for that. It though. is called Trump Care. Trump Care Tracker. We originally fought for the name to be the Emergency Room, but uh, the higher ups wanted something a little bit more liberal. So, oh, no, sorry, but the higher ups wanted something a little bit more literal, not liberal. I've got that covered. <laughs> um, and so my uh, yeah, again, Trump Care Tracker. Trump Care Tracker. Check yeah. it out on wherever you are listening to this podcast. You can listen, find it. There. Yeah. Yes. Um, but okay, so I can't quite believe I've managed to go this long without mentioning the Uber. biggest news story of the well, week anyway. It feels like it feels like the whole show has been leading to this yes. moment, really. Yeah. Like literally I mean, since we started. Yeah, for three and a half years, like basically every single week we go around by email and we'd say what are we going to talk about this week? And someone always says, have you seen this crazy Uber story? And we're like, we can't talk about Uber every week, but we have to talk about Uber this week because Uber is the creature of one man. This is like the epitome of the founder-led visionary company which Silicon Valley extols on a pretty much daily basis. And basically for the first time, you know, since... I guess Steve Jobs got kicked out of Apple. We have had like front page news of founders getting spectacularly defenestrated. I think fired (laughs) by a group of shareholders who had basically no voting rights. No, yeah, no power to actually force him out. It was an amazing thing. Travis Kalanick, the multi-billionaire founder of Uber, and the man who more or less embodies the entire company now has no executive role in that company. He's still on the board and can vote on the board. But he's, he's on no, the board, but he's not the chairman of the yeah. board. And he's, no, he, and he still has tremendous voting rights. Yeah, but he's no which longer he CEO. isn't using. Yes. Because if, if he was using his voting rights and he wanted to stay on as CEO, he would have... And he did want to stay on as CEO. When, like, there's this whole wonderful TikTok about how the investors came to his hotel room in Chicago and he started shouting at them. But eventually... Either he realized that his presence at Uber was so incredibly toxic that he needed to go, or more to the point, he realized that even though he controlled the board, that wasn't enough. That because Uber is one of these companies which is constantly in money-raising mode and needs to be raising money both privately and presumably at some point publicly, if he doesn't have his biggest shareholders supporting him, then he can't run the company anymore. Well, the company doesn't yeah, survive. It, I was going to say, you know, you said that technically these these investors don't have any power over him, except for if he just defies them openly and says, okay, my, you know, his four huge investors camp said, we want you to resign. That is our demand. If he defies them, what does that say to the next person he wants to raise money from? Is, is anyone going to come on board? Like if he has right. to do. I mean, there was, you know, there's been massive upheaval at Uber as we have, um, you know, been talking about in you know, many episodes in the past, we've talked about the sexism allegations. I don't know if we've talked much about the sort of corporate spying allegations and how they stole or allegedly stole a whole bunch of intellectual property from Google. We didn't get too much into the Waymo suit. No, but there is um, the whole question of whether or not they stole self-driving technology essentially from a Google subsidiary. They, they fired more or less everyone you've ever heard of. There was the manager, of course, who also then uh, was toting around a rape victim's medical records to try and prove that she was not, in fact, raped in India, yeah. uh, which yeah, so did they, not they, do anybody any favors. They, they the fired company. Emil Michael, who was the guy who you know wanted to do unspeakable, unspeakable things to journalists. They fired um, Anthony Lewandowski, who was the guy they poached from, um, from Waymo to run their self-driving car business. Um, they have spent more than two years without a CFO, and then they hired the chief finance guy as well. Or he left. Yeah, and I think this is significant. It's not just that they're firing people, it's that people are leaving. And there's apparently, according, and, and the guy who's really been on more on top of this than anything else is, is Mike, Mike Isaac at the New York Times. And he was just reporting about this massive exodus of talent from Uber. And everyone was just sick of it and saying, I'm going somewhere else. And in a hugely competitive labor market that is Silicon Valley, that also was clearly unsustainable. 
Yes. And it it raises the question also, are they leaving just because of cultural issues or are they also leaving because of problems with the company and its model moving forward? And are they leaving just because they, yeah, I mean, either they joined because it was a frat boy company and they realized it was no longer going to be a frat boy company or they they left because they realized that they wanted to grow for some, that they wanted to work for some fast growing, super hot um, Silicon Valley we're all going to become gazillionaires company. And now it's looking much more mature. You know, they, I think that's it's quasi public that they were very keen on getting Cheryl Sandberg to be the new CEO. She seems to have said no. Um, but like they want, they want like a safe pair of hands to manage a mature company rather than a crazy fast growing Well, so thing. that's interesting though, because we're talking about a quote mature company that still hasn't found a working business model. And I know this is sort of, there's this, you, you were talking to me about this earlier, so, and you, you've thought a lot more deeply about it me, so I'm going to turn it over to you in a sec. But it seems like there's this big question of whether or not Travis's exit is sort of a distraction in a way from the fundamental problem with Uber at this point, which is that it still hasn't found its route to no, profitability. It has not figured out a way to make money and a way to be more efficient than current taxi systems in the US, the only way they can compete, the only way they can gain market share is by decreasing, is by subsidizing fares. And so essentially just shelling out cash. And then they can't grow globally. They keep having this problem of they're in a lot of emerging markets. You're having either the governments or local competitors just killing them. And also in Europe, you're having a lot of regulators also not allowing them to grow in the same way. So, so then that question is, how are you going to be able to grow in the US? And if you can't make yourself problem in the US and you can't grow globally, what is the future of this company? So let me ask you a couple of questions about this. Um, The first one is, if we care about profitability, then isn't the first thing you do is you stop growing. It's actually relatively easy to stop losing, relatively easy, not easy, but relatively easy to start making money if you stop investing enormous amounts of money into trying to break into new markets and that you can just start tweaking those dials and stop subsidizing the fares in markets where you already exist and that's how you become profitable right I don't, no because then you lose market share because the only reason people are using your service as opposed to just using a normal taxi service is often because it's 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 partly that it's efficient but partly it's because it's less expensive and if that's not the case then why is anybody going to use your service so then you start to eat into your own You see I'm not I'm not convinced that you're correct about that. I'm not convinced that the universe of people who use Uber and Lyft and various other forms of transportation are that price sensitive and the reason I say that is that Uber has actually done quite a good job of making it very difficult to compare prices. So that if you want to take an Uber from A to B and then you might otherwise take a taxi from A to B or a Lyft from A to B, trying to work out which one of those options is the cheapest is basically impossible. I I don't disagree, except that if if for Uber to really be profitable, right now they are subsidizing rides by like 50%. They would really have to dramatically increase their... I thought they were profitable for like one year in the U.S., I don't think any time recently. Yeah, like last year, but not this year. But anyway, well, they definitely I mean, they may have been profitable in the U.S. They were definitely not profitable overall last year because they lost all that money in China. Right. But they're still subsidizing rides in the U.S. I'd say also I think we should clarify what it means for Uber to break into a new market because it doesn't necessarily just mean um, going to Texas or going to Seattle or wherever or, or Topeka. Um, it often means breaking into a new kind of service, and that's what they're subsidizing. One of their big hopes is uh, is Uber Pool, and that has been something they've been trying to essentially grow market share and get a critical mass of people to start using, but they've had to subsidize it to do that. So it's not clear that that market, if you stop subsidizing, if you start trying to, quote, grow it, will ever will just naturally become profitable. Right. In, in Uber, case, yeah, yeah, Uber Pool, Uber Eats, Uber Rush, they're not currently working. It, yeah. Again, that was the, that's the whole idea that they they understand that right now, in terms of increasing efficiencies in just their normal service, is not getting them getting there. So then they're creating all these other services, but they're very unpopular with drivers because they tend to end up having to wait a lot of time and not actually get paid for that. And they're not super popular with consumers. So Uber has problems, but then that brings me to my next question, which is: if Uber's prospects are as bad as you make them seem, 
then what justifies the $70 billion valuation or whatever we're at this week? Or indeed, do we even have it? I mean, this is one of the things about being private is that in the month or so, certainly since Susan Fowler wrote her blog post and the complete implosion of the of, of Uber seems to have started, you know, there's no share price we can look at. We don't even know what the valuation is anymore. Right. So I think that's one point is that, A, we don't have a real valuation and B, even once we do, and it'll probably be inflated like a lot of tech valuations, it's there's always a question of what is actually underlying. What is the cash generating potential that is underlying these valuations? And I think that is a big question mark. So what's so what happens now? Because it isn't just missing a CEO. Like Travis Kalanick was doing about five jobs at once, and he was very one of the big fights he was having with Bill Gurley, who was you know, another board member and investor, was precisely that the board. One of the demands they made when um, when they asked him to step down was not only to step down, but please just hire a CFO because. Um, because they need, they've been wanting that for years and it hasn't happened. Now there's like all of the C-suite basically is empty, which means if you hire a new CEO, that CEO has the ability to to not only run the company as they want to run it, but also hire basically all of their direct reports. I kind of like the idea of them just sticking with this committee they've got now and experimenting with sort of like kind of communal-like management. Like They can, they can move to holacracy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like. I love that. The drivers yeah. will get a vote. It'll be great. <laughs> like, this is this is a wonderful management case study in the making, I think. Yes. Just like, just leave the HBS down the line. See that Lots of fun with this. Leave the C-suite empty and I mean, come what yeah. may. <laughs> Ev, Ev Williams needs a job. They should hire him to do it. <laughs> Just bring him on out. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so pretty soon, though, right, they need to hire a CEO. And it's probably going to be someone, you know, we've heard of who is probably going to be a woman. And it's probably going to be sort of someone who people can look at and say, big sigh of like oh wow okay now there's a grown-up in charge and and we should be able to just like it can become boring for a while i think cheryl sandberg would be perfect though because that would also like be her like her triumph is like the symbol of like neoliberal feminism also <laughs> just like she would just all she'll have ascended to to the mountain the, the, again the, the as someone who mountain. really likes cheryl sandberg <laughs> <laughs> What, the, the interesting, and she's good at making unprofitable things profitable. That's true. No, she would also probably be good at it. The interesting thing I have about this is the role of Ariana Huffington, who <laughs> she is could be CEO. who is an who is <laughs> she's the a, Travis Whisper. She, well, she's the Travis. She is nominally an independent director, um, but she has emerged as Travis Kalanick's biggest defender on the board, um, his biggest friend on the board. And the person who was like, as he was being holed up, not doing press, Ariana Huffington was the person who was always doing loads of press and defending the company and saying, we're, we're doing great. We're doing it right. We're putting all of this stuff behind us. Travis is great. I, I don't quite understand how that happened and how she found herself in that role. She loves celebrities like that's sort of her deal is getting close to famous people and Creating yeah, business I, relationships based on that? Because everyone on the board, basically, except for Ariana, was like really getting increasingly annoyed at Travis. And she was his big... I think what this says is like, if Ariana Huffington is your ally at your company, like you're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, if she's your last... If she's, if she's, she's your shield... She's just going to tell you to sleep. That's, yeah. all, that's go, all you get. Go to bed, get some rest. Anyway. Yeah, he, he Travis did, is he basically did, done. Yes. He did apparently meditate in the lactation oh, room. <laughs> <laughs> okay, enough of Uber. We will see how this one transpires. I but with any luck, there'll be it'll be more incremental news from now on, so we get to go a few weeks without having another Uber segment. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and. 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Amazon. Yeah, there's some news. So, <laughs> I mean, there was this, what that happened too in the midst. Yeah. That was, I think that was last week, but we had the scams edition. So, yeah, yeah. So, so, so around then, somewhere along the way, Jeff Bezos woke up one morning and said, I have a spare $13 billion. I have nothing really better to do with. So, I'm going to buy 
Whole Foods, and like you do, <laughs> the and the general reaction when a company makes a massive acquisition, which is which is significantly outside what it's historically been good at, is that the market punishes it greatly. The share price plunges, and everyone goes, "You are crazy! What are you doing?" And Amazon, like as ever, is the exception to this rule. The share price went up on this announcement uh-huh. rather than down. Everyone else's share price went down because they were like, oh, no, now Whole Foods is going to be able to compete. And and the general consensus seems to be this was a really good deal. Yeah, I mean, the tricky thing about talking about Amazon acquisitions is that Amazon itself says we never do this for any one reason. There's always a whole galaxy of reasons why we will buy a company. And so a lot of people have been trying to look at this and saying, this is what they're doing and this is what they're doing. And in fact, there are a lot of things. Amazon wants to get into physical retail. It wants to learn more about how to just like run a store where people don't have to whip out a credit card and it wants to figure out the secrets of of, of unlocking that sort of utopian future in their in their view. Um, they wants to get better at the grocery business, which is just enormous in this country. I mean, half of Walmart's business is basically groceries. You know, Amazon has been trying and sort of failing to to fight on in the own online grocery delivery space. This will give them a huge foot in there. And they should be good at this, right? I mean, there are certain groceries which you really want to go and buy fresh, the fruit and yeah. veg, the fish, you know. But the overwhelming majority of the weekly grocery run that people do in America is, I don't know, like, paper towels and pasta and dog food and other stuff which you which Amazon should be really good at and weirdly isn't. Well it's some it's good some of that, but Right, but I also do think just by the nature of the fact that perishables perish, you're yeah. going to have to keep replacing them. So that is always going to be a big Yeah, but you also you also of- have to keep on replacing a bunch of non-perishables like right. you know toilet paper. I you know, I, you know I, I'd add. To, I just want to keep adding to lists though. Like you know, in honor of Kathy O'Neill, I should bring up like there's data here. Like you know, data merchants half of what they are buying and selling is is lists of shit people buy at the grocery store and at CVS on like membership cards. And I feel like I my supermarket just does an incredibly bad job at knowing who I am and what I've been buying and how to serve me better. And that if Amazon buys Whole Foods and I start buying, spend, you know, shopping at Whole Foods, then Amazon will do a much better job than Whole Foods has done up until now in terms of really being able to cater to me and talk to me and say, hey, Felix, you know, why don't we just, we know that you like this particular brand of paper towel. We can just throw that in with your Amazon Prime deliveries that you order anyway. And so just enjoy your Whole Foods shop by squeezing avocados and don't worry about the paper towel. Absolutely. Whole Foods will now be part of the digital panopticon. Yes. <laughs> like yes. That is. No, and again, I think that's that's the model. It's not that um, Amazon is trying to move into entirely delivering all groceries. It's this idea. That Although it would love term. to. Yes. It's just the logistics are I think will never entirely work. And so it's this idea of, okay, yes, they will, the non-perishable items, your paper towels, your toilet paper, you will be able to just essentially have delivered in an easier way. But they will also have, they will be growing this Amazon face in the retail bricks and mortar sector. And then there's just like simplest thing, which is each Whole Foods is you know, it's a distribution node or kind of a warehouse. You know, it's they're not, you know, your Whole Foods are not going to just be stacks of boxes now, but it is a place where you can pick stuff up or they can ship stuff from. And it just, you know, and all of them are located in fairly um, wealthy, bougie neighborhoods where, you know, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of prime customers. Right. And the worst part of going to the grocery store, well, especially if you live in New York City, is that you have to carry your groceries home. Yeah. And if there is simply a way that they can make that easier, I think that's Well and and that's that's a relatively unique New New York problem, but there is a broader issue which is that Amazon and Amazon Prime in particular is all about delivering stuff as efficiently as possible to people's homes. And at the beginning it relied entirely on third-party services like USPS and UPS to do that for it. And 
increasingly it's trying to build up its own logistics infrastructure. What we're in the beginning innings of right now is a huge existential war between Walmart and Amazon. Walmart bought Jet.com, which was its big, uh, you know, Amazon killer, and has been exp- and Jet and Jet in turn has been expanding. Um, and the reason why Amazon is so afraid of Walmart is because it has much better logistics than Amazon has. Walmart has the ability to get stuff around the country in the way that Amazon has not yet got. And now that Amazon has bought Whole Foods, it's moving in that direction. And Walmart historically has always had this model of we'll get all of our stuff in bulk to a huge central warehouse and then we will rely on the great American minivan and SUV to go the final mile and we don't need to pay for that. Um, but if Amazon come, can come back at this from the other direction and say, well, you know, we're good at that final mile, but we just don't have the network of um, warehouses, then this makes the competition with Walmart a really interesting one. Amazon has also been offering lower cost prime membership to lower income consumers. They're clearly trying to expand this market again of trying to get more and more people to and have ultimately everything what they really want is to just be a super customer friendly store for anyone in America to buy whatever they want. And they started online. But they realize that a lot of purchases are not necessarily purchases that you want to make online. And if that means they have to open up 450 stores around America or buy them for 13.6 billion, then that's what they're going to do. So I would amend that a little bit and say it's not just that they want to be a customer friendly store. They want to be the retail network. They want to be the whole shebang from the store to the online, you know, portal to the transportation network. Um, And so that actually leads to a question I have for you guys, which is I'm wondering how much personal dread (laughs) <laughs> this purchase inspi- ma- makes you feel uh, like how how worried are you about this? Because I'm sort of in the in the camp of I was I, I was sort of mildly freaked out about this um, when I saw it, and there are a lot of people I know. I'm curious before I go on a rant about it. Were you guys worried at all when you saw this? Did this make you nervous? I no, it didn't. Not because, at all. Because I have never felt that Whole Foods is a remotely important part of the American ecosystem or economy i think it's a very sort of indulgent toy for rich people and if amazon wants to buy an indulgent toy for rich people all power all power to them okay anna yeah and i dread no yes very little dread as someone who essentially buys almost everything on amazon (laughs) (laughs) i'm not gonna lie i'm just kind of like i hate shopping yeah the only thing but it's interesting because the only thing i do not buy on amazon are my fresh fruits and vegetables. And because again, it is just, and not even not just not on Amazon, but even not on Fresh Direct because it's inefficient. Okay, so let me explain my dread just a little bit, which is, you know, this deal was announced. Amazon is buying Whole Foods and it's sort of expand, you know, Amazon is expanding its empire. It's becoming a bigger conglomerate, moving, you know, aggressively into a new part of the economy. And there, a lot of people are sitting there going, why are our competition laws not prepared to deal with a company that operates this way where it you know, buys something it may not you – know, it may not be monopolizing the market immediately, but clearly its goal is to undercut competitors and use some kind of predatory pricing in order to knock them off to – not, to knock them out of the way. Wait, wait. Hang on a sec. I don't I – don't, when you say clearly, I think that's a huge stretch. It's clearly – they're going to be competing, and what and what the anti-monopoly, antitrust laws exist for is precisely to encourage competing. If they're doing something which brings prices down for consumers and which makes the competition more intense, and which finally gives some competition to Walmart in the sense that Walmart has not had any competition up until now, that's more competition, not less competition. And competition is actually what. We want from these laws. We want more of it. Well, so and this is, again, getting back to our definition of what competition means. If your only measure is consumer prices, then you're never going to stop Amazon from buying a company like Whole Foods. You're just not like and that is how. Why would you want to? The question is, are you are you allowing a company like Amazon to slowly but surely take over larger and larger parts of the economy where structurally it is essentially the retail network where 
at some point you have forked over retail to one not one kind of uh you know behemoth and that is that that slow creeping growth and the, the possibility yeah, and, and, that will these laws are you know they're re- they're relatively bad at stopping slow creeping growth they certainly didn't stop the growth of Walmart and Walmart can continue to open as many stores as any as many new stores as it wants and yeah i think that while you might, from a public policy perspective, have a problem with big companies becoming even bigger, I think that the antitrust frame is not the best one well, to use. Wait, because antitrust, the current antitrust laws have been very influenced by the Chicago school. Yes. So it's entirely about prices. scarcity. It's prices and scarcity of products. And if you're not negatively affecting those, yeah. they aren't very concerned. Yeah. And the other instance is where and Amazon has really taken advantage of this and it's this mismatch and that a lot of the laws are also, they're interested in what's going to happen in, a, in maybe one to two years. They are not looking at what's going to happen in 10 and years. And that's exactly the thing is that antitrust law used to be concerned about. Like there used to be, there were Supreme Court cases back in like the 50s where they would prevent vertical mergers like this where a company would buy something that's sort of, you know, down the production line or down the, down the supply chain that just in order to prevent the possibility of anti-competitive behavior. And one of the things that I feel dread about is that we haven't really figured out a new you know, antitrust competition scheme that is appropriate for the economy we now have. I don't okay, think there so is a I, really good yeah, rule to deal with Yeah, and I feel like it. we've had this conversation before, and I feel like I still don't entirely understand the difference between anti-competitive and pro-competitive since they both seem to mean the same thing in many, in many cases. And I also feel like it's a little bit crazy to expect any government, but certainly the American government, to start making 10-year extrapolations about what a company might look like and, and start legislating against that company, not on the basis of where of what it is doing, but rather on the basis of where we think it might possibly be in a decade's time. And this is a concern because if you're thinking about like, yes, if, if you got to a point where Amazon was the only retailer ever, yes, of course, that would be an issue. But you can't structure laws now with the idea of what could happen in 20 years because even looking at Walmart, where has Walmart been? And now look at where Walmart is. We have no idea what the, exactly what things are going to be I in think 10 you, or 15 years. I'll just say, and I'll leave it at this, that you, I think you have to think about the long term because of the way competition affects the economy. We're starting to, you know, economists are starting to realize that, hey, startup growth is slowing the U.S. Hey, new businesses aren't forming the way they used to. Hey, it looks like a lot of income inequality is actually not driven by pay between CEOs and the regular workers. It's driven by pay differentials at the really, really profitable companies or the really successful companies, and then maybe the less profitable companies. And that's where most of income inequality in in this country comes from. It's Google and everyone else. And how much of that is because some of these major firms are able to effectively monopolize or become part of an oligopoly. And so we have these long-term trends that this feeds into. And if you don't think about dealing with, if you don't have law that is meant to deal with the long-term, you're not going to be able to address the long-term failing or the the long-term kind of um, just rot in our economy. Okay. So um, when we Start with the next great five-year plan for the U.S. economony. We will put Jordan Weissman in charge of the new controlled economy. Fucking lutely. China, they're good at their uh, five-year plans. (laughs) As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Ether. Ether. Okay. All right. So so there is a new thing in the world of Bitcoin, which is not Bitcoin at all. It is Ether. And it is a whole bunch of like sons of Ether. Including what is this new one that just launched $140 million or something? So, well, this is from Bancor, which is issuing this new type of smart token. So, okay, 
I'm going to take a step back here in terms of what the larger umbrella of what we're talking about here, which are ICOs or initial coin offerings. So this past week, there was a, I believe it was upwards of $140 million were raised in about three hours in one of these initial coin offerings. And this was raised by people paying Ether to get this new smart token. So, And the idea is that in some at some point in the future they are going to be able to use that smart token to do something clever on the internet and it kind of doesn't matter it's, what that thing is it functions almost like a share except unlike a share you have no actual ownership of the yeah yeah you're not you don't actually own the company but you have the ability to buy products from the company and ether itself is built this way the ether itself the currency is a token which allows you to use a certain amount of computing power on the ethereum network and so like kick the messaging system is trying to do an ico for its own currency called kin which it will then if you want to buy whatever it is that they're selling on their network like the ability to send videos or something you're gonna the only way you can do that is by buying kin and using kin so it's all of these digital services instead of paying for them in dollars you're going to start paying for them in tokens and what the companies can do is they can fund themselves in advance by selling the tokens in advance before they even start selling the services should we have been dealing with this on the scams edition (laughs) it just sounds i don't know yes i'm gonna go with yes i feel like the more i've learned about this the more just red flags i feel like this raises it's certainly an insane amount of money and one of the interesting things about the kick example is that there was there there have been hints it's not quite explicit because the ico hasn't happened yet but there have been hints from the ceo that he's actually going to use the ico as a liquidity event for his investors and he'll take the money which he raises from the ico and use it to cash out his early stage investors and he will actually do an ico in lieu of, in, instead of an IPO. Right. But again, I think we should go back to the fact that the difference between an ICO and an IPO is in an IPO, you are buying regulated shares where you actually have ownership rights, where the the other person can't just abscond with the cash that you've given them. Like, I think it's important to remember that this is a completely unregulated market. And you are taking Ether which in terms of its value is all over the place. And you're using that to then essentially be given a coupon for this new cryptocurrency, which again, its value is essentially based on nothing. And this is how we are funding these projects. And and the reason what could why, possibly go and wrong. the reason why people are buying into these ICOs is not because they think that they're really going to want to use the coins to do computing in the future. So they should be buying the coins now because they'll you know so that they can use them in the future to buy things to buy computing power. It's rather just purely speculative. Yes, the people is, are buying the ICOs just because they think they're going up in value. This is why I ultimately think when we're talking about cryptocurrencies, we have to remember that these are not currencies. These are much more like commodities. These are much more like stores of value as opposed to true exchanges yes, of value. Yes, they're definitely, they're definitely, certainly these new ones, the ICOs are not currencies at all. I mean, Bitcoin is barely a currency. Ether certainly isn't. Um, and the other ICOs which are built on Ether are certainly not currencies. And... One of the interesting things is that along with this rise of Ether and the rise of the ICOs has been a simultaneous rise of Bitcoin, which everyone is kind of over at this point. Everyone's like, Ether makes much more sense for a million reasons. Bitcoin is forking all over the place. No one can agree on anything. The amount of time it takes to send money on Bitcoin is going up and up. The cost of doing transactions on Bitcoin is going up. And so the question becomes, why is the price of Bitcoin going up if Ether is so much better? And the answer is that Bitcoin is basically the only way to buy any of these things. That if you want to buy Ether or you want to buy Kin or any of the ICOs which are happening right now, the way you do that is you take your dollars, you convert them into Bitcoin, you then take your Bitcoin, you convert them into Ether, and then you take your Ether and you convert it into this new thing. And so there's this flow of dollars into Bitcoin just 
to then get converted into Ether. And that's what's driving the Bitcoin price up. And it also suggests why these valuations make very little sense, because if the entity that you're creating is then going to, in in theory, artificially inflate the underlying currency that you're using to buy it, you are almost inevitably just creating this bubble. I I have a question as like the the cryptocurrency illiterate member of this crew, like super illiterate. What are these things even supposed to be doing now that's like special? Like like the latest version that like had its ICO. Like so, what is... so I'll tell you what it is. It's very close to Kickstarter. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. Well, it no, like... uh, well, I would actually push back a little bit on that. I actually think these aren't so much crowdfunding. They call themselves crowdfunding so they can get around securities regulations. But what I'm saying is that on Kickstarter- That's let... awesome. <laughs> no, no. I mean, you're right. In terms of security, but then but what I'm saying is that they're not even securities which are pretending to be crowdfunding because they have really nothing in, com- in common with securities at all. Remember, the commodities aren't securities either, and they are commodities, but really what they are is they're tokens which allow you to buy something or to own something, a certain amount of computing power in the future. So if I fund a Kickstarter to you know buy a album which a musician is making so i spend my 20 dollars now and essentially what i get for my 20 dollars is a sort of some kind of a token which gives me the right to get an album in the future when the album is made and the icos are a little bit like that i spend 20 dollars now I get a token which allows me to use a certain amount of computing power on a certain platform which is going to exist in the future, assuming it all goes according to plan. Well, it's also supposed to be that token is supposed to somewhat function like a share and that it's going to increase in value if the project you're funding is successful and increases in value. So again, it's more like a store of value. Yes, there is this idea that you're getting this new type of currency that then you can use to buy like stickers or whatever it is you do on these these well, sites. That's what I'm asking. It's like these new blockchain projects that are sprouting up to, with ICOs. What's special about them? So, so the general way that these things work is that there is some kind of service that can be provided on the internet. And the tokens, because of the way that the ether code is written you can basically build that service into the tokens and then that's so that ability to use the service um you can encode into the tokens and then you can either use the service yourself by spending the token or you can sell the token to someone else who wants to use the service so we've gotten that far so now this this new service bank core is it even worth explaining to me? No. No, You're shaking it's your head just it's it. really we can, complicated we can put, we and can reserve put, ratios and smart contracts. We and, can put a link in the show notes to a wonderful like deconstruction of how stupid the whole thing is, which existed on the internet, and we can just link to that. But yeah, fine by it's me. none of the the vast majority of these companies are, are going to amount to nothing. The thing which is amazing is the dollar value of the amount of money that they're raising, and that seems just inexplicably bonkers. I agree, because it's it's just not tied to anything. Well, it, I think ultimately it's tied to the fact that both Bitcoin and Ether are crazily overpriced right, right. now. And so anything which is so denominated... So overpriced. That's exactly where I should be putting my money. But I'm saying that anything which is denominated in Bitcoin and Ether, which basically all of these cryptocurrencies are, are you know, mutatis mutandis going to become overpriced as well just because they're denominated in crazy overpriced assets. Hi, I'm Francis Fry. And I'm Ann Morris. And we are the hosts of a new TED podcast called Fixable. We've helped leaders at some of the world's most competitive companies solve all kinds of problems. On our show, we'll pull back the curtain and give you the type of honest, unfiltered advice we usually reserve for top executives. Maybe you have a coworker with boundary issues, or you want to know how to inspire and motivate your team. Give us a call and we'll help you solve the problems you're stuck on. Find Fixable wherever you listen. Let's have a numbers round. Woo! Uh, um... You know what, Jordan? Normally, I don't know what your number is. This week, you were. But this week, Felix I was walking. Guessed. I was walking into the um, to the studio this morning, and I was like, "Jordan, is your number going to be about tequila?" And I was like, "Fuck yeah, it's about tequila." Um, so yeah, my number is one billion, which is how much uh, 
George Clooney and his buddies managed to sell or up to one billion managed to sell their tequila company for Casamigos. It's apparently the fastest growing like premium tequila brand in the country or whatnot. It's 40, 50 percent a year. This is this is expansion. this is a really small yeah. universe. By yeah. the way, there are eight of these te- yeah. premium tequila brands and, um, and most of the other ones were big. And Casamigos is only four years old. So almost by definition, it's going to be the most fast growing. So maybe that explains. OK, so so Diego is like this worldwide Diageo Diageo sorry is like one of the big liquor players worldwide and they shelled out an enormous amount of money for this little company that doesn't have much in the way of sales and so I've been kind of confused about that because I I get it when a like beer company spends a lot on a craft brewery because they're essentially going to use that brand to then try to shove other craft breweries out of bars but I didn't I haven't been able to wrap my head around exactly what they think they're getting other than a and they already have the number two premium tequila. They have Don Julio, right? Yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah, the number one is Petron, number yeah. two is Don Julio. Now they're going to have numbers two and three or two and four or something like that. It's it's a weird game, especially when you realize that the total amount of cases that Casamigos is going to sell this year is 120,000. It works out at like five and a half thousand dollars per case that they're paying for this company maybe the idea is that if you're a liquor store you're looking for some diversity in the brands you sell and this allows diego diego to provide the illusion of diversity it says okay we have don julio you're gonna buy that anyway and you can get this other one to make it look like uh you have you're selling multiple brands and that way you don't have to sell patron or something maybe that like could that be it maybe maybe there's gonna People catch it. Always it just going to buy patron. I, I think i think a lot of it is george clooney <laughs> that's, that's so weird. Why would you pay a billion dollars for George Clooney? Potentially, oh, I would. I would pay two billion dollars for George Clooney, man. That man. Uh, that, that man is worth. I just learned ten so, billion. We just learned a lot about Felix <laughs> in a very few words. If you put George Clooney up for auction, I mean. What makes you think that anyone would wind up winning that auction for less than a billion dollars? Um, Anna, number. Okay, so I've been going back and forth between numbers. I think I'm going to actually go back to a China number. All right, well, hang on a sec. If you're going to do a China number, let me get my China number in first. Because, um, yeah, I I thought that for once Anna might not have a China number. So I thought I was going to bring along a China number. And so my China number is 5%. (sighs) <laughs> and oh, I was like, Wait, damn, you, that was my Jenna. Big-footed Anna. Jesus. I, I totally big foot. But Anna has two numbers, so she can, always, numbers, yeah. she can always go back to plan B. Um, yeah, 5% is uh, the weighting of Chinese stocks in the Morgan Stanley index. So Morgan Stanley has a big global index of all the stocks in the world, and they're going to include 222 Chinese stocks in it. It's a big move. But here's the but, is that each stock is only – you're only getting like a 20th of the stock is going into the index. They're right. weighting them all by 5%. For float. It's a, it's a really weird thing. That, and then every other stock in the index, like if it's a stock, it's in the index. Now in China, if it's a stock, it gets a 20th of the index or a 20th of its size is in the index. Do we want like, do like American like mom and pop investors want exposure to the Chinese stock market? It's, well, that's scary. That's why... MSCI is taking this so slowly and why they're only weighting it by 5%. And it does talk a lot to the incredible power of the three big um, index providers, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, that these decisions by MSCI, it's not just, oh, I invented an index, I can do what I like with it, but there are multi-billion dollar consequences yeah, to them. You're talking about between estimates of 7 and $18 billion of foreign capital flowing into China as a result of this, potentially. These are things called China A shares. And yeah, what brave new world it is that like you know anyone in an index fund is going to start buying China A shares. So um, Anna, what is your plan B number? My plan B number is $2.75 billion. And so this past week, Argentina issued $2.75 billion um, worth of USD-denominated century bonds. Okay. So 100-year bonds. So, all right. So $2.75 billion of 100-year bonds. We are not going to talk any more about this right now because we're just going to wrap this um, podcast up. And then after all of the thank yous, 
we are going to do a little nerd out extra thing for people who want to listen to even more Slate Money about Century Bonds and why they make sense because this is so fun to nerd out about. And I will be the person who stands in for people who have no idea what's going on, <laughs> asking the necessary questions. So don't worry, I will be your spirit guide. For I, I will be your gu- the guide for the perplexed here. Um, so unless you want to stick around for a conversation about convexity, that and is... And who doesn't? <laughs> and, and frankly, who doesn't want to... You know, try it. You might like it. It's like tequila in that respect. Um, mix it with some... Lime and some salt, you know. <laughs> Which one of us is the lime? <laughs> um, but yeah, I, do stick around for that. But in the meantime, I am just going to thank Dan Schrader for trying to keep some semblance of coherence to this podcast and for putting up with some really quite impressive construction noises which were going on. So if there were some weird drilling and weird noises along the way, I apologize for that. Um, also, go listen to I Have to Ask, which is hosted by Isaac Chotner, and he interviews interesting people on Thursdays, and he has talked to Ashley Parker of The Washington Post, who is very good at blinking skeptically. So if you want to know how to blink skeptically, go listen to I Have to Ask. You can find all of those shows at slate.com slash ask. If you want to email us and maybe even give us some more topics for little nerdy segments at the end, Our email address, as ever, is slatemoney at slate.com. So with that, we're going to segue into nerddom. But for the rest of you who can't even bear the thought, we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Convexity. Okay, so, Anna, you used to buy bonds for a living and sell them. And, I was on a team that bought and sold them, yes. And bonds, you know, if you look at the big benchmark yield curve in the world, U.S. Treasury bonds, they go all the way out to 30 years. They're really, the, long, the, the long-term debt in terms of Treasury notes is the 10-year. That's the really liquid one. That's the one which everyone trades. If you want to know where are bond yields right now, you look at the 10-year. But if you want a huge amount of extra duration, you can push it all the way out to 30 years. But that isn't enough for Argentina. No, they are going all the way out to 100 years. Why? Explain this to me. You have to pay more interest for 100 years, which means that the total amount you pay back over 100 years is like three times as much, more than three times as much as if you just issued the bond for 30 years. Your debt service is higher over the course of those 30 years than it would be if you issued a 100-year bond. And you don't really care about having to repay the principal payment in 30 years' time because that's so far away, no one worries about that. So why on earth would you borrow for 100 years? It's it's just more expensive, right? Overall, yes. I mean, like... (laughs) Partly, it has to do with the fact that there is significant demand for these types of instruments for this longer term paper. And why? And okay, so number one, like, why why do you borrow that? The answer is, well, because people want it. So then I guess the next question, number two, is why on earth would people want it? So when you're managing a portfolio, if you are a pension fund, you are not engaging in kind of asset-only management. You're engaging in asset liability management. So you have liabilities, and you need to offset those liabilities with your assets. You're not just doing mean variance optimization. You're saying, okay, I have a certain number of liabilities that are occurring at these times. I need to match those cash flows. So if you're a pension fund that has long-term liabilities and you, the longest-term instrument you currently have is 30 years, you're not getting the best match there. So you actually need these longer-term instruments. So let me see if I can understand that, because I feel like if I can get what you just said, anybody, because Lord knows. <laughs> so if you're, again, the idea is if you're a pension fund, you're going to have to pay out money 20, 30, 40 years down the line, 50, God only knows, right, if you're, you know, GM's pension fund. Um, 
And so you need some guarantee that you've got something that's going to be paying off in that 50-year period. Is that like sort of the yes, idea? Yes. And again, it's this idea that it's okay. If you're doing asset liability management, so this is tr- primarily at pension funds, at banks in terms of their securities prof- portfolios, you're not just trying to get the highest return for the risk. You are trying you have a surplus in between your assets and liabilities and you're trying to maintain the value and reduce the volatility of that surplus. So you want to really try to offset every liability cash flow you have with an inflow. And so that's how that type of asset but, management but works. But here's the thing, right? I mean, we have to just I know that we weren't really going to talk about Argentina, but we have to just mention this. Argentina has defaulted three times since I've been writing about it. <laughs> You know, I mean, in the, the the chances that it's going to make it all the way to 100 years without defaulting on this debt are frankly zero. So you're not buying this because it gives you any sense of security that you're going to have a cash flow in 100 years time. No, but in terms of right now, how your how your portfolio looks right now, that is no chance of defaulting. You can show using proper accounting that you have offset all of those liabilities. Oh, that's such a great hustle. <laughs> it's like this is just like a CYA kind of thing. But, like. but there, there is this other thing, which is why I really wanted this segment. And I really and, and, and we I'm going to I'm going to use the, the C word. Convexity. 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 And this is dun, I'm, dun, dun. I'm pretty much convinced the real reason why there's demand for these bonds and the real reason why issuers like Argentina feel that they can raise a lot of money by selling these bonds. In order to understand convexity, you first of all need to understand Duration. the basic relationship between price and yield. Now, Jordan, you're, you're a financially you know, sophisticated yep. person. So what is the relationship between price and yield? Price goes up, yield goes down. Right. So, so, and that's really important. And so you can imagine, and this is where it gets a little bit difficult. 99% of the charts that you see in, you know, The Economist or the Wall Street Journal on blogs on the internet are going to have time along the x-axis. But this is going to be, I'm going to ask you to imagine a chart which does not have time along the x-axis, which has yield. Along okay. the x axis. I'm imagining this. This is there. I just want to say this is very satisfying because there have been many times I've tried to draw. <laughs> I've literally tried to draw a chart in the air on this show, and Felix has been like, "What are you doing, Jordan?" And so now he's feeling my pain. <laughs> so but, but I'm imagining the yield along the x axis, right? And then okay. and then price like price is always on the y axis. So okay. Price on the y axis, yield on the x axis. Yeah. And so what you do is you wind up with a curve. It's not a straight line, obviously. The you wind up with the curve, which it, which starts high on the left and curves down to being low on the right. Yes. Yeah. And it's kind of asymptotic in both. Yes. Uh, at both ends, and so you have like a short head and a long tail. Yes. Right. And a and a sort of curvy bit in the middle. Yes. Okay. And so that curve is basically the that shows you the price of the bond for any given yield. Yeah. And what happens with bonds is they change yields over time. Interest rates change, yeah. you know, interest rates go up and down. And when the prevailing interest rates go up, the interest rate on your the yield on your Argentine bond is going to go up. Yeah. Right? When the yield on your Argentine bond goes up, what happens to the price? It goes down. Okay. When interest rates go down, the yield on your Argentine bond is going to go down. And what happens to the price? It goes up. Okay. But remember, this is not a straight line. This is a curve. So at one point, yes. this reverses. Well, it's not so much that it reverses, but the point is that it's asymmetrical. Okay. So if interest rates go up by, say, 1%, yeah, then the price will go down, but it won't go down a lot. Okay. If, pri- if interest rates go down by 1%, yeah. the price will go up a lot. Okay. And the higher the duration of the bond, the longer the bond, okay. the more that prices go up when yeah. interest rates fall, and the less that prices go down when interest rates rise. So it's hedging. It's protecting you against the fall. It it protects you a little bit against pr- uh, capital loss in the event of interest rate rises. Right. And I think it's important just yeah. to maybe tell people that it's okay. Duration is the sensitivity of the bond's 
yield to or the bond's price to small parallel shifts in the yield curve. And and, and convex- people call it duration because it's very closely related to maturity, right. which is what we're talking about. And there's like a difference between years. Macaulay and modified duration, but we don't yeah. need to get into all that. But but the point is that like in general, the longer the maturity of the bond, yeah. the higher the duration. I yes. see. So I have a question now because again, this is one of those moments. Usually I give the big theoretical answer about it. <laughs> Felix is like, what the fuck? It's like momentum trading or something. So right now I have someone who's actually worked on a trading desk right in front of me. Is this explanation legit? Is this like actually what you're thinking at all when you're buying a bond like this? Or is it really just cover your ass? I need something that matches my liabilities. Well, yeah. I mean, again, I didn't work for a pension. Okay. I mean, we managed. But, but would, if you're looking at a this type of long duration vehicle, honestly, right now, because we know we're going into a rate hiking schedule, usually you're going to want to shorten the duration of your portfolio. Okay. So part of the reason that you had such investor appetite for this bond is just because you got like an 8% yield on it. Okay. You're you're not going to be you're less likely to be really factoring in like the convexity long term because no, but, also but the convexity does mean that if and when raise rates rise, you're not going to lose that much money on the price of the bond compared to if you bought a bond with lower duration. Yes. And that's rare. Normally, with yeah. high-duration bonds, that gives you more exposure to yeah. interest rate moves. If you have a bunch of convexity in this bond, that kind of mitigates that exposure. How long does a bond has to la- have to last for before you get that convexity effect? Like, how long is it? Or is it like how it's it's, it's a comp- the thing which causes convexity is there's a bunch of things. One of them is a long duration. Okay. Um, and another one is actually the the coupon. Well, yeah. So you need to you need to look at both the coupon and the duration. What is Anna? What what does the coupon have to do with it? So, I'm trying to figure out the in the actual equation of how the coupon. So, I think it's going to be there are numbers swirling around our head right now, like literally as I look. right. So just so you understand, <laughs> when you you know when you issue a bond, there is a specified coupon on the bond, which is the interest you have to pay semi annually on the bond, and so if you're going to have a higher coupon bond that's going just trying to think here i'm trying to think exactly how that's because also has to do with how you can like if you had if you had a hundred years zero right that would be that would actually have less convexity right right yeah the the higher the coupon the more convexity. yeah exactly yeah exactly and although then that goes into another whole question of whether you can reinvest that coupon at that same yield which, because your the yield you're getting on the bond is meaningless if you can't reinvest your coupon income at that same yield. If you're getting in eight per, because when you're factor when you're calculating a bond yield, you're calculating it with the expectation that all of the income you get can be reinvested at that same amount. If it can't be, then that yield is not a real number. Interesting. In so, other words, pricing this stuff is. A nightmare. <laughs> um, and every so often, and this I think really ultimately comes down to how these things come into existence. Every so often you get this weird confluence of investors and like um, the sell side, these crazy people who structure bonds at investment banks and debt capital markets desks, suddenly realizing that what they want is something which a certain issuer would actually quite like to be able to issue. And then there's a window of time in the market for whatever reason that everyone's happy. And it's the job of the DCM desks at you know, JP Morgan and Citigroup and places like that to, to jump into those windows and to match buyers and sellers in that little brief window of time when you know Argentina wants $2.75 billion and there's sort of four big real money accounts who want a century bond and bang, it all comes together and then they make their 6%, well, not 6%, they make their 1% and everyone's happy. And then it could be just like three days later, like that little window has shut and no one could do that deal anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think this... Argentina has been able to raise, since they came back to the capital markets, a significant amount of money, both through the sovereign and the provinces. 
partly because, again, they're offering significant real yield and because of, frankly, not that we're going to go into a huge conversation about Argentina, but the current government is much more market friendly. They're putting through a lot of reforms that suggest that at least in the next, say, 10 to 15 years, this is probably not a bad investment, especially if you're looking at that coupon. The other thing that's important to remember about this bond is that it had a seven and an eighth coupon when it was issued, but it was issued at a discount as well. So you weren't playing full you weren't paying par, you weren't paying face value. So that was why you actually also got that increase in terms of yield. There are, you nearly always get bonds issued at a discount. This is a weird Wall Street convention, which I don't entirely understand. Um, when you issue a bond, it normally gets issued at like 98, 97, 99. It almost never gets issued at 102 or 103. The yield is nearly always higher than the coupon. Is that just like an old thing that dates back to the days when they were all gathering under like the willow trees or is it like this? I think that also has to do with um, how how much appetite there is in the market for the bond. And also, it's also just that people like buy side investors don't like holding a whole bunch of inventory at above par. So it just looks better. It's again, just another. It's like it's, it's like people don't like the idea that they're buying a bond for 110. And if they hold it to maturity, they'll get 100. It feels like you're losing money that way. So there's there's visuals here to worry about. Exactly. There's aesthetics. There's the aesthetics of the bond market. Yes. All right. People like to feel like they're making money. It's weird that. OK, I, on which nerded out note, we will leave uh, listeners to go listen to. What is your podcast? One final plug. Trump Care Tracker. Trump Care Tracker, because once you've learned about convexity, what you really want to learn about is um, whether or not time maximums on whether or not you'll have health care. Yes. Yeah, that's 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 what we want to talk about. <laughs> all right. I'm off to listen to that now. Thanks, guys, for listening all the way through. You get a gold star. Well done. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.